It's episode 282 of Crack the Customer Code, and winter is coming. We are so lucky today to bring you an interview with Stephen Shapiro. He is the master of innovation, and I think as much as we talk about innovation and how it impacts customer experience overall, we've never had a conversation quite like this. Would you agree, Adam? Absolutely. I mean, Stephen's one of the foremost experts truly on this topic, and he, you know, it's funny because he brings innovative thinking to the concept of innovation. It's really some unique stuff he talks about, and you know, that's so I, meta. <laughs> uh, very meta. <laughs> and as you will find out as we get into the interview, Jeannie and I both commented that we're taking personal notes in this interview. That's how powerful it was. And mm-hmm. I see he's just one of the, uh, he's here in Orlando. So I'm very fortunate that he's a member of our NSA chapter and um, he's just one of the smartest guys I know. So this, this was absolutely fantastic. And of course, NSA in that context is National Speakers Association, not the NSA that you might have heard about that's associated with our government. Just to be clear, I don't want people to get paranoid listening to this. Let's do the, let's do, <laughs> you got to do the joke. It's the NSA that speaks, not the one that listens. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot to get to in this one because, uh, yeah, as Adam said, get your pencils sharpened, get ready. You're going to take some notes on this one. So should we tell everybody about Stephen? Let's do that. <laughs> For over 20 years, Stephen Shapiro has presented his provocative strategies on innovation to audiences in 50 countries. That's 5-0. During his 15-year tenure with the consulting firm Accenture, he led a 20,000-person innovation practice. He's the author of five books, including... Best Practices Are Stupid, (laughs) which is such a great title, which was named the best innovation book of 2011. His personality poker system has been used around the world to create high-performing innovation teams. And in 2015, he was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. Hey, Stephen, we're so happy to have you here with us. Thanks for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Steven, so good to have a little Orlando in the house here. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to have you. All right, well, we're going to jump right in because I know you've got so much you talk about that we love and that's relevant to our audience. And the first thing I want to talk about was questions. And I, I love your take on questions. And this is something that's really near and dear to my heart because I believe questions are a big framing exercise. You know, if you, from a customer experience perspective, if you say, uh, you know, why are my customers such jerks as opposed to how can I help my customers better? That helps frame how you approach it. Now, you use this from the standpoint of innovation, and you say the single greatest skill lacking in organizations is that ability to ask really good and profound questions. So talk about why that is and what can organizations do to improve in this area? Well, I, I think one of the big mistakes that companies do is they uh, get everybody just sort of working on whatever they feel like they should be working on. And to me, the key, if we look at collaboration, because to me, innovation is not a solitary effort. It's a collaborative effort. And if we change the questions that we focus on, we're going to get different results. I mean, we can change literally one word in a question and get a different range of possible solutions. So the questions we ask are, to me, the most profound tool we have uh, inside of organizations, I'd even argue, in, in you know, with life. And so what do you mean by that with that one word switch? Are there examples that you can share or even are there examples of organizations maybe that ask better questions? 
Sure. Well, anybody who works with me ends up asking better questions. That's uh, sort of the rule. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, I'll give you just a fun story. This is one of my favorite stories that I tell. Uh, it, it's uh, an airport here in the U.S. that was struggling with a customer service issue, which was baggage claim. It took too long. And so they... No, really? Yeah. <laughs> get off of a plane and, uh, you know, you're waiting for your bags and you're bored out of your mind, especially after a long flight. So they looked at what was going on. They found out that it took on average 15 to 20 minutes for the bags to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So like any good innovator, they went to the task of speeding up the bags and they spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, new technology, and they got it from 15 to 20 minutes down to eight to 10 minutes. Most people, most organizations, most companies at this point would be declaring success and moving on to the next opportunity. But in this case, when they asked the passengers, what was the biggest complaint? Still, they heard baggage claim. So what they realized was that it took all this time, money, and energy to get it to eight minutes, to get it to seven, six, or five would be just way too expensive. And then they had an epiphany. They realized that the bags took eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. But at this particular airport, it only took the passengers one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So what do you think they did? Instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down, down the passengers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they literally reconfigured the airport. So it would take on average eight to 10 minutes for the passengers to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. They get to the baggage carousel, their bags are waiting and the passengers were thrilled. Huh. Now, if we spend our life, which we tend to do, solving the problem that looks like it's right in front of us, like the speed of the bags, we never think to look elsewhere. And to me, that's really the opportunity. So, you know, NASA went from how do we get clothes clean when we're in space to how do we keep clothes clean in space? Change one word in a question and you get a completely different range of solutions. Getting clothes clean is about cleaning fluids. Keeping clothes clean is now a material science problem using antimicrobials and other materials. So one small shift has a huge impact. I love that so much. And it reminds me weirdly, I'll admit, of <laughs> um, doing homework with my kids because there are times where they get really worked up because they're trying to solve the wrong problem, you know? And one of the things that came up recently, I said, well, what are you stressed about? And he said, I'm not going to get this done. And I said, so what's the the main problem that you have? And he was like, getting this done. And I said, well, getting it done, you can get it done in two weeks. But if you're trying to get it done for tomorrow, the question is, how can you be super efficient about getting it done in the right way? And we kind of orchestrated backwards from there. And it was like a huge relief just to ask that different question. So it's I've never thought about it in the context that you just put it with organizations and innovation. And I think it's, it's a really great way to look at things. Yeah, I really well, like it. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, I love that example because I think, and, and Adam, coming back to something you said earlier, it is about reframing. That's mm -hmm. really all it is, is we're reframing the situation. And I think that's really the key with all of this is if we can shift our focus, if we spend all of our times trying to speed up bags, well, that's great. We can come up with really cool solutions. But if we're looking to slow down passengers, 
I gave you one example, which is reconfiguring the airport, but that still opens up a whole other range of opportunities. For example, if I'm sitting in coach, I actually like to sit in the back of the plane if I've checked my bags, because I will just sit on the plane while everybody's deplaning. I'll keep my iPad going, watching a movie or doing work. And then by the time I get off the plane and get to the baggage carousel, my bags are there. So I've slowed myself down. But there's <laughs> other, there's so many other ways to solve a problem, not just the one that's right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe yeah. you could do a little consulting on the spot here. Cause I keep asking the question, how do I get <laughs> Jeannie to do most of the work for this oh, podcast? And it's not getting the results I've, I've been looking for. <laughs> See, you're asking the wrong question. I know, I that's, that's, that's what that I right want. Now. That's what I want Stephen to give me a better question. <laughs> how can Adam get more work done is the question. I oh, have. <laughs> All right, we're well, all... even even in, I know we're, we're we're sort of dancing with this thing, but uh, you know it's interesting because a lot of times in companies, one of the big questions they have is, you know, how do I get my uh, people to do uh, more with less? Like I've got I've just laid off a bunch of people, or I've got more work. So you know, how do I get them to do more work uh, when there's less people? And it's actually the wrong question. To me, a different question would be, how do I do less? and get more, which seems like a very subtle shift, but it's actually a pretty massive shift in the way you look at it, because now what we're doing is we're talking about leverage. How do I can, how can I get leverage in an organization? So the questions unleash not just different intellectual thoughts, but there are even changes in emotional state in your personal life. If you're trying to get out of debt, like how do I get out of debt? That has a particular emotional state. But if I say, how do I create financial freedom? Well, that concept of freedom breathes life into what you're doing. It will change your emotional state, which might, even if you got these same specific steps to get to the end result, it will be a different feeling and therefore you will have a higher likelihood of solving it. Oh, and I love yeah. I love that example because that really dovetails into what we talk about in like with customer service reps and frontline reps is like asking these negatively focused questions as opposed to asking questions that have a positive framing doesn't just get them better answers. It affects their mentality, mm-hmm. right? It affects cool. how they feel about it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little here because um, I don't like it when people say there are no bad ideas. There are absolutely bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I was struck by your concept that you say that asking for ideas is a bad idea. And basically, you su- you suggest avoiding suggestion boxes or abstract questions. Now, I know you're not saying leaders shouldn't listen to their team. So I assume we're talking about how leaders can listen better. So tell tell us about your theory here. Sure. And and this this is actually more than theory. This is this is reality in terms of how. Uh, we're able to interact with uh, people inside of our organization. So look, if you ask your customers, if you ask your employees, if you ask your partners and suppliers and people like that for their ideas, you will get literally hundreds, if not thousands of ideas. And what happens is if you think about a large organization, so you've got 50,000 people and you say, okay, what are your ideas on how to prove, improve the business? I guarantee you, you will get literally thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas of which maybe a dozen are of value. It makes it hard to find those dozen ideas because there's just so much noise in the system. But if you also think about the wasted energy involved, it is massive. 
So what I encourage people to do, and it comes back to where we started, which is instead of asking people for their opinions, suggestions, or ideas, we want to ask people to solve a problem for us. So, you know, how do we, how do we get this opportunity? When I use the word problem, it's really, it's not just negative things. Like I've got an issue in the company. It's, Hey, I've got an opportunity to grow. We, we have a new growth opportunity. If we get people to solve those, then first of all, we know first and foremost, they're solving something that's important to the business. Most ideas and suggestion boxes are very low value, tactical, and they tend to have to do with something related to the individual who submitted it as opposed to being something of value to the organization as a whole. So when we shift that mindset away from ideas to getting people to work on solving challenges, we just, we've, we've shown that we will increase the returns, the ROI that we get in our innovation efforts, a minimum of tenfold, and in some cases, significantly more. Wow. Tenfold would be nice. Amazing. <laughs> I imagine. I know. <laughs> well, and I think this all kind of, it it's almost like shaking up the equilibrium of how people are thinking about innovating and uh, gathering that feedback. And one of the things that you say is that innovating everywhere is actually a mistake. And if you read any of the business articles right now, it's kind of like this theme of we should all be innovating all the time about everything because there's a lot of advice out there that basically says you should always try to be innovating around the business. So I'm curious how, you know, what does that framing mean to you? And and why do you say that innovating everywhere is actually a mistake? So I'm a big believer that everybody should be innovating. Totally support that. And I also believe we should be innovating every day. Hence my first book called 24-7 Innovation. <laughs> Where I have the issue is everywhere. Every problem is not equal. There are some opportunities that are more important than others. And if I'm trying to uh, improve the speed at which I move papers through my office or the speed at which I staple documents or the speed at which, you know, we're able to do some mundane tasks, the amount of energy it might take to solve those problems could be equal to something that's more valuable. So when we work on innovation, the first step to me is to get clear about how you differentiate yourself in the marketplace. What makes you special? Why do people do business with you and not someone else? And then my mantra is innovate where you differentiate. Innovate where you differentiate because you can't be the best at everything. Therefore, you need to figure out where to place your bets. And there's a whole body of work I've developed around this, but it's it's so to me, this is this is the one of the keys to being able to get hyper focused on what's going to create the greatest value. I love that. I mean, because we talk about it from the perspective of the customer journey, it's basically sort of an 80-20 proposition, except you're cho you're choosing those few in, you're choosing those few areas where you differentiate where you have can sustain some competitive advantage, right, to focus your energy and time. That's what yes. you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there's just a, a core dist a distinction here is when we look at the types of activities that exist in companies, they exist at three different levels. You have support activities, which are internally focused. They benefit the business, but not the customer. So we'll ignore those for the moment because we're all about customers here. Yes. <laughs> the second level are core activities. These are things which customers value. This is th these are things that customers expect, but these won't be the reasons 
people do business with you, they'll be the reason people don't do business with you. So if you get this wrong, they will leave you. So these are the expectations, the table stakes that you have in your business, in your industry. And those will be pretty common across all companies in an industry. The differentiators should be, as the word implies, different from company to company. And if you're trying to replicate someone else's differentiator, you will never be successful because you'll be playing a game of catch up. So for core activities, we don't want to innovate. We want to just create a well-oiled machine. This might be partnering with other companies who are experts at this as their differentiator. And then you can focus your energies on really what's going to make you special. Hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. And what's interesting, do you, do you tend to have a hard time you know, convincing leaders uh, to take this approach to sort of you know, give, give up some ground tactically to focus more strategically? Is that, is that a... Usually an easy sale, a hard sale. How does that usually play out when you're consulting? The, the, the concept is easy. I don't think it's a difficult sell. And part of the reason is every company is so busy that if they don't find a way to way of prioritizing, uh, they won't innovate. I mean, the, the, most companies, the reason why their innovation programs fail is they're trying to solve every problem. They don't have time to do it. So they do a mediocre job on everything. Uh, what we need to do is get people to hyper-focus on what creates the greatest value and where they struggle is not so much in the concept of differentiation, but identifying their own differentiator. It's not as intuitive and obvious as most people think, uh, especially since your differentiator isn't something you as a company typically get to declare, but it's what the market says. The market determines how you differentiate. The market determines why they do business with you. And if your differentiator is something that's not understood by the market, if your differentiator is something that's not valued by the market, then it's not a differentiator. So if you determine your differentiator and if you're really focused on that and you know who you are, how do you make sure you're hiring the right people? How do you, how do you make sure that, um, the, you know, as you build a company and scale up and it requires more people, are you actually looking for people who are super like-minded or are you trying to get some more ideas and, different opinions and all of those great things. I'm just curious what your take on kind of hiring the right people for these ideas are. So I always say if your organization hires people who only fit the mold, eventually the company will grow mold. And <laughs> the, the, the reason why I say this is that if you look at organizations in the past, what mattered was efficiency because there wasn't sort of a hyper speed that we have now in the market. I mean, change was, uh, you know, it would take decades for things to change. Now we're talking about minutes before certain things change in the world. So speed is important and adaptability is important. Efficiency is not as important. We want to be efficient how we change, but efficiency for its own sake isn't important. And if you think about what really drives innovation, uh, it is diverse points of view. So Steve Jobs once said, uh, creativity is just having enough dots to connect. Creativity is just having enough dots to connect. Dots being ideas or experiences. And the reason creative people are so is because they've either had more experiences 
or they've thought more about their experiences than other people. And so that's what we need to do is create an organization with a lot of dots and find ways of very quickly connecting those dots inside the organization. So we need to hire people with different innovation personalities. We need to hire people with different experiences. Uh, so when we use the word diversity in organizations, it goes beyond the typical diversity programs. I think we need to reach even further and get into what are the, the mental uh, states that people have, whether it's their experiences or their personality and how they drive innovation. I love the innovation personality idea because people do approach it very differently, but you need all of those different perspectives in order to really innovate for the best solutions. Um, but I wonder how many organizations don't think of that when they are hiring. And when you're, well, uh, oh, go ahead, Sue. I was just going to, well, I think one of the, one of the issues also is people have a confused notion of what innovation is. I mean, innovation is not the same thing as creativity. Uh, innovation is an end-to-end -end process that starts with an issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity and ends with the creation of value. Now, if you think about what you need for that, it's not just brainstorming and, you know, developing, you know, new ideas. I mean, that's part of it. But problem definition, that first step is so fundamentally critical. That's a different skill set than someone who might be really great at developing wacky ideas. That's also a very different skill set than somebody who's really great at implementing the change. So part of the reason why companies do what they do is because they have the wrong notion of what innovation truly is. You know, you mentioned the Steve Jobs example earlier, and I think if you look at his history, there are the, the times he didn't sort of, you know, where he just was embracing the creative side and sort of forgetting the operational side and the practical pieces around it and the whole puzzle that is innovation were some of the times where he failed. You know, yeah. You know, I, oh, good. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, I think that's where a lot of, uh, you know, if I look at the, the mistakes that companies make, differentiation is one that they haven't identified their differentiator. Focusing on ideas rather than questions is number two. Uh, and I would say that uh, not recognizing that expertise is the enemy of innovation is number three. If we have people who are all the same, I mean, let's face it, if I'm an expert in my industry, if I'm an expert in my function, if I have, you know, 30 years of experience in hospitality, you know, when somebody says, you know, well, what if we did this? I'm going to bang my fist on the table and say, but we've always done it this way. It's a very difficult thing for somebody to see the world differently when they're immersed in it. And so that to me is why so many companies that were once really successful failed in the long run because their past success actually led to their future failure. Yeah, it's funny. Their past success led to their future failure. That's another one. I'm I'm gonna have post its all over. We're, we're gonna have. So, yeah, I, I've, I've actually got like personal notes right now. By the way, <laughs> that's very <laughs> <Yeah>. rare. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's a, it's very on topic for what you said with the expertise being the enemy of uh, innovation. President Truman once said he didn't like experts because an expert was somebody who didn't want to learn anything new because he wouldn't be an expert anymore. 
Mm. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. a good quote. Yeah. Well, I want to get to something that's really neat because, Stephen, you are officially, and I, I, I mean this in the nicest sense of this term because this is a very loaded term, but you are officially the first reality TV star we've had on the show. So, so I want to hear all about it. You're on this really cool uh, innovation reality show called Girl Starter. So just uh, tell us a little bit about it and what it's been like and all that. Sure. I mean, it... it you know, I'm obviously I'm passionate about innovation. Uh, and one of my challenges is that most of the time I spend my energy with very large companies helping them innovate. Uh, and Girl Starter is a movement that is all about empowering women between the ages of 18 and 24, roughly speaking, but it's just young women, empowering young women to start their own businesses, to launch their own businesses. And so they approached me to be on the show uh, in, in the second week when the first time they had any, uh, when they started to actually work on their projects. And I was one of the mentors, uh, working with, uh, the women on the show. And I was also the judge for that episode. And it went so well that they just kept on bringing me back. And it, and I've been really closely linked with what they've been doing, a big supporter of it. And I think it's, uh, you know, just a really, you know, check it out, girlstarter.com. It's just a really nice, uh, way to empower young women to think differently about, uh, you know, the opportunities that they have with their lives. It doesn't mean you graduate from college and you go to work for someone else. You could work for yourself. Mm-hmm. Here, here, I love it. Mm-hmm. I'll have to definitely check that out. We will also include that in our show notes too, so everybody can find that because that sounds like a really exciting project and something that you're clearly invested in i can hear it in your voice so that's really really cool that you're doing that yeah and i was able to see i was able to see some of it It was really neat so good great job yeah i mean the the target audience for the show are you know younger women so adam i don't think you and i are the necessarily the (laughs) the target audience (laughs) we're not the target demographic but uh i mean for me what i loved about the show was it was just inspiring to watch people become so passionate about their businesses. And on the show, we had two women who, before they went on to the show, already had two successful businesses that they had launched. And I look at what they've achieved by the time that they were, you know, 21. And I think about what I achieved by the time I was 21. And I became a little embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just really inspiring. Yeah, ne- never, really never cool. go there, Stephen. Let me just tell you. Just never, especially, and you and I, we've talked before. Uh, we're both musicians. Just never go on YouTube and watch some six-year-old playing your instrument. <laughs> I mean, it's just the most depressing thing you'll ever do. So, exactly. <laughs> but on that positive note, <laughs> uh, Stephen, this has been absolutely fantastic. Truly, yeah. uh, I, li- I literally was taking some personal notes here. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom your expertise, your innovative ideas. See how I, I should did bring that, my post-it with me next time we're in the same place and have you sign my post-it so notes that, my I, post-it. that I put up with your quote. <laughs> Is using a post-it note innovative? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, this it, was great, Stephen. Thank you so much. And um, how can people find you and connect with you after, after this to learn more from you? Uh, the easiest way is just go to my website which I'm assuming you put in your show notes, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I'll say steveshapiro.com just because there's only one way to spell Steve, but there's two <laughs> ways to spell Steven. Uh, so if you go to steveshapiro.com, you can find me. 
Um, there's also personalitypoker.com, which is one of my products uh, around helping you understand what your innovation personality is. It's just sort of a fun game that you can play with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Oh, that's awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I had a great time. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Well, that was really fascinating. And I think we can agree that we need to ask some different questions for innovation. And we need to make sure we are honoring everybody's different innovation personalities. Absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the most challenging, you know, if if you sort of look at what Stephen said as a set of challenges, like, Mm -hmm. here's what you need to do. I think the most challenging thing for most people, at least for most humans, I don't know about organizationally, is gravitating towards embracing those diverse opinions. I don't mean diversity Mm -hmm. like people, but really diverse styles, diverse approaches and having that tension and that those different lenses to put together and connect those dots, as he said. Mm -hmm. So we hope that you got a lot out of this too, and that you're going to go back and innovate, innovate, innovate. (laughs) Write us an innovative review on iTunes. We haven't, we haven't asked in a while. (laughs) Well played partner. Yes. Thank you. I'm here all week. (laughs) We really do appreciate you being here with us. Thank you so much for listening to Crack the Customer Code. We are a proud member of the C-Suite Radio family. If you like C-Suite Radio, and we know you do, then check out C-Suite TV and watch in-depth interviews with business content for C-Suite leaders and entrepreneurs. It's all on demand. Get insider secrets by going to csuitetv.com. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can learn more about me and our customer experience investigation consulting at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Tapork, and you can learn more about me and our customer service workshops and training at customersthatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.